And we're live with our 109th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co host, Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, Ken and I are flying duo. I, I guess I couldn't say solo, but yeah, we're flying duo today. Um, we don't have a guest. Uh, that's partly by design. Uh, as Ken and I start to dig into different topics and things like that, it's always interesting to have a discussion where it's not necessarily driven by a specific, I don't, I don't want to say agenda, because mo- our guests aren't driving any sort of an agenda, but um, at least kind of review what's going on in the broader application security community, the other things that have popped up recently. And I, I mean, really just catch up, right? Uh, Ken and I used, well, I mean, we used to work together pretty closely, but over the last couple of years, you know, he, he went to the Borg and uh, we just don't get the same time as we, as we once did. So um, as far as announcements go, uh, there is the upcoming course for uh, Black Hat Europe, uh, the next level bug hunting course for secure code review. Uh, we don't ha- we don't necessarily have anything else on the schedule. I know we keep saying watch this space for um, an independent course. So Ken and I will be putting one on sometime this fall, uh, just as a follow up to provide the community in general with a another resource somewhere to go, and we'll try and do it online so that everybody gets a shot at it. Right? Um, yeah. Besides that, I, I mean, Ken, what else is on in going on in your world right now? <laughs> Uh, let's see. Besides BJJ, right? You know, (laughs) (laughs) no, yeah. Professionally, um, a lot actually. It's been super busy, uh, because we have several projects jumping off. Uh, meaning when I say jumping off, meaning going GA. And, um, so that's it's been a, you know what, to be honest, between uh, your satellite and universe, a couple months before those, it always picks up in workload. So, um, yeah, this time of year, I always expect for it to pick up a bit and, uh, you know, hasn't let me down this year. So we're uh, and also we're kicking off some new stuff. You know, you and I were talking about it and we can talk about it on the show later. But sort of the risk of self-service risk assessment stuff, some threat modeling, just trying to figure out how that's going to become how that's going to scale is the best way yeah. to say it. how's it going to scale for all the developers that we now have. So um, because as I've told you privately, uh, GitHub's expanded the amount of engineers as well. So it's um. Yeah, it's been a it's been a bit of a challenge, but it's been a good challenge. Nothing that I don't look forward to. Um, yeah, and also also we uh, you know we're still trying to find somebody for the red team lead position. So um, I've been helping with, uh, with on that front too, and for the search. And uh, yeah, it's just been like busy but fun, good. And I'm in a good mood, and I told you why, and we could talk about it on the show. But yeah, yeah. and actually actually before we. Uh you know, jump into that specifically, you know, speaking of the stuff that's going on over at GitHub, right? I don't know how I missed it, but this is going to be a, this is going to be a life life changer for me. And I know you've been working on it from the, uh, you know, the security side of things, the GitHub CLI that went to 1.0, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times, even within the last six months that I'm like, oh crap, I got to do something with GitHub. I'm like, it bugs me that I have to jump away from my CLI to actually perform like, oh, I'm creating a new issue or whatever it is. Right. And then yeah. this popped up. I was like, how did I miss this? Right. So yeah, I'm already starting it to integrate it into my workflow and how I, yeah, how I work on a daily basis. And part of this is, um, 
from a project management perspective, the way that like we run projects as a consulting org, we do it all through GitHub, right? With GitHub issues, we've got markdown files, we've got uh, you know cloned repositories that have all the checklists and everything that we use, it's all built around GitHub. And so just having that ability to actually jump in. But you know, I haven't found any vulnerabilities for you yet, right? So I don't need to jump on HackerOne quite yet. But. Well, my, my piece to that release was um, just uh, reviewing the uh, OAuth device authorization flow, which is interesting because if uh, nobody's ever read the spec, the spec's actually really good to RFC for giving you just like uh, pointers on how to prevent social engineering and stuff like that. So that's what I uh, used, you know, to, to make sure that we were following some best practices in the... Uh, because uh, the CLI is using functionality that's new on GitHub too, which is the OAuth device authorization flow. So it's similar to like, you know, hey, you want to watch HBO on your Xbox, like go go to activate, type in this code, and that's that's the same thing. So mm -hmm. the only thing you're looking there to do is just making sure, just make sure that you know. Uh, the user made meant to to kick off that that uh, request, right? That you know that you, you do all the. You give it a certain flow to prevent social engineering, um, and yeah, we. So it was a it was a fun review. I really had a good time doing that one. Um, good, yeah. So, yeah, cool. yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you can talk about the reviews that you do, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, right? Yeah, I, I yeah. We we so we because <clears throat> we've got a few. Like the one I'm really excited for is the code space the code spaces project that gets released, yeah. uh, you know, in the coming months. So that'll be fun. I think we've talked. Everybody's ta heard about that publicly, so it's nothing that's like super secret. So it's nice. No, and I, I, in GitHub. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, honestly, from a, yeah, from a developer perspective and the code perspective, that one is going to be huge. And from a training perspective as well, right? Like, I, there, there's so many possibilities with that where the IDE is embedded with the code or available directly where the code is that I don't have to spin up some huge environment. Um, I, I mean, that's that's been the other thing we've been using quite a bit is uh, the GitHub Actions stuff as well. Mm. Super streamlined. Um, I, I mean, I, I know I sound like a, a bit like a GitHub fanboy today, but you know, that's... <laughs> hey, I'm always a, a fanboy. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, um, that, that one... Uh... But yeah, so that that <laughs> you know, it, it, someday we should talk about when all this stuff's over, like what all goes into that. You know, I don't yeah. think I can right now, but I would love to talk to like what all what, what speak to what all goes into these these projects with with actions. It's interesting too because you know it's it's <laughs> there's a lot of known things, right? And that's where it gets a little dicey for people that are doing any kind of like offensive testing against it for like bug bounty purposes or whatever is just that, you know, like, because we keep getting in the same, you know, like, well, I can, for instance, with a containerized environment, you're always going to get people looking to priv-esque, but it's like, if you can't priv-esque and then have lateral movement, like what's the point, right? So you get a lot of that in and you're like, well, okay, we know it's part of our known stuff. And anyways, I could go on forever, but I won't. Uh, yeah. Know, turn it into a, turn it into a promo for, for, for the for, board yeah exactly <laughs> but uh yeah it's there's a lot of cool features coming so be on the lookout for sure in the coming months yeah i mean and all of that just helps you know overall from a security perspective right and and i know there's a lot of a lot of things to that go into it I, I i mean one of the one of the things i've been asked to do more and more recently and i know you've been doing it on the github side is the whole threat modeling aspect yeah. 
and trying to determine, like train people how to do the threat mod to do threat modeling, but also actually performing them on systems that I'm not intimately familiar with. Right. Um, and it, it becomes a really interesting exercise to come in and, and look at something that you didn't build and attempt to attempt to figure out what, what people are going to go after it. Right. Um, I, yeah. I know from a you know from a secure code review perspective, when we talk threat modeling, it is very limited to kind of that space, right? It's scoped to hey, this specific code space, this this specific feature. When we start talking about some of these overarching systems, and then um, like other actors outside of oh, there's just the drive-by script kitty or the or whatever, right? Like you start talking nation state actors and, and this this is going to lead directly into the, you know, the main topic that we want to talk about today, but being able to influence people and like kind of nefarious purposes that we don't necessarily think about mm. coming from the technical side of things. Um, it, I don't know. I like it's, it's a difficult process and, I, I'm coming around to the realization that it's more of an art than it is a defined like technical process. Um, and, and I mean, the same thing could be said of penetration testing or like application, like secure code reviews or whatever else. But, but at the very least, like having some sort of a checklist is, you know, very helpful as far as figuring out, Hey, this is what a code base does. Like these are the, uh, the specific vulnerabilities that we know exist in code Right? It feels much more technical. Whereas when you start talking about threat modeling, it, it's almost like pie in the sky, right? Um, so, so like, I'm interested, you know, number one, and then we'll get to the social dilemma and like how algorithms actually like, you know, we're, we're creating algorithms that hack our own brains, but. Um, yeah. Hmm, interesting. It, yeah, but but it feeds into this, right? From a threat model perspective, right? Because we're designing these huge applications, we're designing social media applications, uh, but we never did like a realistic threat model of what people are going to use those for, right? So <clears throat> I want to go back just a few seconds ago when you called it an art, and I think yeah. This is this has become my understanding of what we do professionally. So whether it's giving training, whether it's uh, doing secure code review, whether it's doing a dynamic assessment, or whether it's doing threat modeling, it's all an art. And like you mentioned, jujitsu earlier, and <laughs> it, it's like with jujitsu, you learn some specific techniques, but it takes years to be able to apply them correctly in the right scenarios and figure out like what things work for you better, you know, what work best for your body and your game. And why I say that is it's a martial art, right? It's the same thing yeah. reviewing code or giving or doing a threat model. You can know all of the technical pieces, but it's how you apply those individual uh, pieces. That is your fingerprint. It's your art. So I a hundred percent agree with you that it is absolutely an art. And I want to add that, and I, I think we should have Javine on uh, this uh, podcast, but I just, you know, was meeting with Javine. I was telling you about this from segment talking about threat modeling, and I don't want to give away their secrets. And I, I think we should have him on to discuss it, but um, they're doing more of a, they're trying to go the self-service route and the training is very, I told you about this private, so, but 
publicly and I'll, I'll just give out like the, the high level, but the way they explain it to their developers is, Hey, um, we're going to have you walk through a threat model of like a scenario that is realistic to real life, not technical at all. I'm trying to not give away the way they did it, but it's not technical at all. It's very personal. Everybody can relate to it. And you know, that's how they did their, their training is they made it, they took away the technical aspects and they focused on what are the assets, right? What's, what's the asset? What's the risk? How do you want to apply controls? Does it make sense on, you know, a piece of property or, or <laughs> I'm giving it away, but you know, if it doesn't make sense to spend X amount of money, you know, on something worth three times as less. It doesn't make sense or 10 times as less. It doesn't. So they, they did, they made it a very practical, realistic, very, very much a thing that everybody can understand. So if you can take something that's relatable like that and apply it to a technical, you know, or give it a technical application, I think you're ahead of the curve. They did a great job. So I really want them on the podcast to talk about this. I'm going to reach out actually. Yeah. I, I mean, that's an interesting way to apply it. Right. Cause, and I mean, in our training, we talk about it all the time. Um, you know, the, the cost to benefit analysis, uh, as far as security controls go. And, and this has yeah. been a discussion for years, right? Like, um, the cost breakdown of, does it make sense to spend a hundred dollars to secure a $10 asset? Right. Um, right. And, and that goes in the physical world. That's the, that, that's the model that insurance companies are built around. Um, so it, like, like it makes sense that people already think in those numbers, right? Or think in the in those terms. Mm -hmm. And I think we're geared as humans to think in that way. Um, so you know, is it worth us for worth it for us to go work, right? Do, mm -hmm. do I make enough money to cover whatever? Yeah. So yeah, it would be interesting. Like I, I would be interested to hear how that went. Um, what sort of like feedback they had um, uh, from the developers and what they're seeing from a self-service perspective, how that's actually working out. Because that, that's always the big question for me with threat models is, uh, I mean, they're, they're, okay, well, that's one of the big questions is how, how the rubber hits the road, right? What is the output that you expect, right? Is it, you know, actual mitigations? Is it findings? How are those communicated? When you give them to the developers, what actually happens with it? And then the other thing is, where are the blind spots? Um, right. And this goes back. This goes back to our whole inclusion, like diversity inclusion discussion. I feel like we're missing out from a application security perspective if the only people that we talk to when we do a threat model are the developers. Yeah, right. I, know. I agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, and a lot of places you need to talk to the DB admins, the sys admins. You need to talk to the project managers and product managers. It's the whole whole thing it's a whole effort lots yeah. of input <laughs> and so. and that that's where it becomes very difficult to actually perform because mm -hmm. it's not it's not this succinct oh i only need input from one team or from one person it's i need input from okay i need organization at large and maybe I do need that third party to come in and take a look from an external perspective you know maybe i do need someone from a a complete like an insurance company, right? Like there, there's just different risks that every person takes into account. It's the same reason that our code reviews, like we we sit down and have, you know, a quick powwow on what are the risks that everybody sees with this because mm. everybody sees it differently. So, 
Yeah, for us, the output, the desired output and result right now is just because we start this process in the very beginning of something being developed. Our ultimate goal is to have a designed, a well-designed architecture. So yeah. what I mean by that is it's, for instance, like, you know, it, code spaces, for instance, in the very beginning, now it's changed, it's it's evolved, and we've had to change things around. But like, you know, for instance, it didn't make sense to have it as a, a subdomain of github.com, and then, you know, have potential cookie tossing issues and things like that, right? So just from a basic standpoint, it was like, can we iframe it and put it on a domain that's not trusted, or sorry, not, not, not that's not trusted, but that's not on github.com, right? Does that make yeah. sense? So then, um, then we started thinking, okay, well, there's, there's, you know, there's gotta be a website that you can access, you know, uh, cause they want to spin up a server on through the IDE and they need to access it to see if their app that they're troubleshooting and debugging is working. Okay. Well now that's a whole other set of considerations. And that's basically what you get into. You get into like, okay, if I can design this, uh, w w in a, in a way that, limits the damage and the likelihood of session theft or abuse or phishing or whatever, then that's how I'm going to go about this and reduce that as much as possible from now. And that way from now on, when new code is developed and if an issue is introduced, we've minimized the risk and minimized the overall impact just because we've, we've done our due diligence. We built the moat around the castle. We have the, you know, the drawbridge, like we, we, we thought, thought this stuff through. So anyways, that's, that's our desired output have them yeah. a well-architected application. And then if things happen after that, well, you know, that we at least have a sane way of, of uh, mitigating risk. So, yeah. Yep. Anyways. Well, that's the whole like cost of benefit analysis again, right? Like you, you can always spend more money on security controls than the assets worth. And it's easy enough to, to spin out a control on any one of those risks, right? To over overstate the risk of, say, uh, you know, an external attacker or a malicious user. Um, but at some point, you've got to draw the line, right? Uh, and that that's going to be so yeah. dependent on the organization as far as what their risk appetite is. So. Yeah. And like one thing I've learned, um, even having done this as many years as I have, this is still a new lesson to me recently was like, Hey, you know, just be, just be, just have backup plans, backup design plans, because what ends up happening is that as you, you, you come out with like, you, so we did a threat model, whatever we've got our idea of what we want to build as you go along, there are going to be roadblocks that actually make you change your original decision, the design changes, the architecture is now going to change and sometimes very significantly. So what I didn't think to do, and now I know this just from this, having had this experience recently is have backup plans, like have backup, de backup designs for that architecture that you can say like, okay, if this doesn't work, well, here's my second most secure and maybe even my most third secure way of doing this. So that's just the lesson I learned along the way and, you know, might as well pass it out. What, since we're talking AppSec. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it goes to, yeah, I, I mean, most architecture, right? Like security architecture reviews or like when you do a design, like you build an architecture, it's a pie in the sky type thing. It's usually not, uh, not the end. Uh, it's really not the end architecture or implementation, I guess, um, because things change, like technology doesn't work as expected or new technology comes out. Um, any architecture or threat model 
document should probably be a living document, right? You've got to revisit that anytime things change. Again, something I didn't know. I found that out uh, yesterday that this that this is ideally a twice a year, ideally at least a minimum of twice a year. And I didn't even know that. Like I thought, you know, I was thinking about it more in like the original process. I didn't think of it as a living document over time that you should continually update. I just didn't think that, you know, that's maybe my shortcoming, but again, learning, still learning. No, I, I, don't, I don't think it is, right? Because I think that's the, the constant. Uh, I mean, that, that's being in the field, right? Is there's yeah. the, the constant learning that happens and there's that constant um, improvement of processes and how we approach things. I mean, it's the whole reason we built the Secure Code Review course. Okay. And like, as I start looking at kind of the threat modeling artifacts that are out there too, I, like I'm extremely disappointed, right? I, like as much talking as we've done about it, it is, I, and I realize it's an art, and I realize that it's going to be different from organization to organization. Mm. Um, but like some of the, like the tools and the the checklist, like the process documentation that's out there is so high level mm-hmm. that it, it it's a very kind of difficult difficult thing to recommend to someone, right? Hey, go look at this specific documentation, and it's going to take you through a basic threat model, right? Um, it nothing does that, right? No, it, yeah. it's very <laughs> it much work. a yeah. It, it doesn't work that way, and I don't know if it's just because it is such a hard problem to solve, and because everyone approaches it differently. Um, I I don't know, like you know, so so part of me is on a you know a war path or whatever you want to call it to to you know put something together and you know maybe put it out. We'll see. Anyway, that's it. Yeah. yeah, I can I can honestly say that uh, one thing I learned yesterday from people that actually tried to use threat dragging because I had tried to use it. I don't, but it was a while ago. And I don't really remember. And I, I would say try to use it. I fired it up and I went through it, but I don't really remember. But what I did find out was there were a few shortcomings, but a couple shortcomings. Um, one was uh, a lack of shapes for, for flow diagrams. And the other one was um, having to go into each individual item to look at the notes on it versus an aggregate list of notes uh, you know, around the architecture. So going into like actually clicking on and going into something to see the notes versus, you know, the site has all of the notes that you've made for each individual note or whatever you would call it um, in there. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I've never, this is not me saying that. I just, I'm relaying information that I found. I found out a lot of information the last few weeks about like the newest ways to do threat modeling and the way people are doing this at other companies. And it's just, it's fun. It's actually fun to, to kind of, to, to, it's fun to learn, you know, it's fun to be yeah. doing this since for what, 12 years and then still be learning stuff. That's amazing. Like that's what, yeah. that's what's good about this field. Yeah, it it really is, and I I don't know. I like one of the things right. You you start talking about the the diagrams that you build and the you know building out a a data flow diagram with test boundaries and everything like that, and trying to model something like that in Plant UML. Like I still have not found anything that does as well as a whiteboard, right? Like it just I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, which is why I have this glorious whiteboard no one can see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or my desk that's taking you know, two and a half years to get here. What's that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, but it totally is, right? Like visualizing what's going on with an application and being able to yeah, distill that down to recognize threat. Uh, 
I just have never found anything better. That's that's all. Yeah. Whiteboard, paper, pen and paper, and you you go to town. Actually but, looking for recommendations because we're like, what do we use? Visio? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So anybody who's got some like tips on on uh, d- diagramming software that they use, like uh, please drop it in the comments or put it in the chat or put it in Slack somewhere. Email us absoluteappsec at gmail.com. If you want to well, come yeah, on I, the show to talk about <laughs> it, like I could use some help, man. Yeah. Well, I was talking to Brian Glass because I know he does a lot of threat models too, right? That's and, the and, and that yeah. was the discussion that we had as well was, oh, you know, he's using Visio or Draw.io or Lucidchart, right? Like everybody's just yeah. using those same tools that weren't necessarily designed for threat modeling. They're just basic graphing tools or mind mapping tools, whatever, what, what have you. Um, and I know Threat Dragon, that was one of the points behind it, they were trying to, you know, Hey, you can use plant UML or something like that. But if you've ever tried to use it, it's it like, it falls down. And so, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'd be interested to talk to someone that's, uh, that, that is diagramming that is, you know, at least have some sort of a template that they use for it. Um, yeah. And be, that's not to say don't use Thread Dragon. That's to say, if you can, and you have the time, please contribute to Thread Dragon so we can all benefit. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yep. For sure. Cool. All right. Well, that, that brings us to the social dilemma. Um, so this has been going around a fair bit. It's in the top 10 on Netflix right now. I'm pretty sure. Right. Um, I want to be clear. I have not seen it. Man. And, and honestly, like I just saw it last night. Um, I just watched it, uh, based on recommendations, funny enough for my teenage daughter, uh, she saw it at Sundance this last year, right? Her and, mm-hmm. you know, a group went to a, I, they went to a showing and then a screening and then they had a Q and a with the, uh, yeah, with the director and some of the people that are in it afterwards. Um, so yeah, where to start with the social dilemma? If you if you haven't heard oh. about it, yeah, it's a documentary that talks about social networks and how they're built, um, and the algorithms that, like the AI algorithms behind the scenes, that are tuned to keep people engaged with the platform so that the company can make money, right? They, yeah. they do that? No, they do that. I know. <laughs> no, I, I and I just want to take a pause real quick to just say the the weird timing around all this, because over the weekend and yesterday, I was telling you I had removed from my phone uh, four apps: Facebook Messenger, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Because mm-hmm. on Saturday, I, what I did, I don't think I gave you the whole story though. On Saturday. I went to a, uh, I went to like a barbecue at a friend's house, well, small gathering, please don't be mad at me people. Anyways. Uh, so anyways, we went there, we, we were outside, we were hanging out and, uh, but I was really irritable, man. I was real. I couldn't pin it down. And I had been for weeks, like super irritable and like, just, it was just getting worse. And I was getting like uh, really bummed out about humanity and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, like why? And I realized that every, every, like I am addicted to my phone. Like I am yep. like, I kept checking it even when it didn't make sense. When I removed those apps the first day, I kept, even the second day, I kept going back to my phone looking for an app that no longer exists just to check it, just to check, just to check it. And, uh, 
Anyways, I'm on day three now, um, day three or four of no phone. Uh, I guess I mean, Sunday I took it or yeah, Saturday night. So Sunday, Monday, two, yeah, so third day. And uh, I feel great, man. Like I feel clear. I feel good. I feel like like my positivity and energy level and focus and productivity has all just gone through the roof. Like everything's way better. Just I, I, anyways, that's where I'm coming from. And then you said, yeah. hey, I just watched this this Netflix documentary called so the social dilemma. Social dilemma, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the you know, they reiterate that point that we've talked about quite a bit. That if if you don't pay for a service, then you are not the the you're not the consumer. You're the product, right? So right. with Facebook or Instagram or in any of the social media applications, they are selling your eyeballs to advertisers. And so they're incentivized to keep you engaged with the platform as much as possible. Uh, and then they figure out ways to send notifications, to send alerts, to send emails to you, to re-engage you or to keep you engaged with those platforms, right? Um, and I say, you know, I started like, I started thinking about, cause I, I'm the same way, right? Like there's, there's multiple apps on my phone that, you know, at one point it wasn't as bad. Um, and I, part of this is probably has to do with election year and everything else that's going on, right. COVID and, um, you know, feeling isolated as it is, but I definitely have noticed an uptick in my usage of those apps during times when I'm like, Ugh, there's nothing else to do. But then when I get back into, you know, quasi normal life, it's very difficult to turn that back off. Right. It, it just, yeah. especially if you have notifications that pop up, especially if you have, uh, you know, certain interests or certain people that you interact with on those, on those different platforms. And that, that's where I'm starting to, to realize that, yeah, I, I mean, even, even being a technologist and understanding how those algorithms are written and what they're trying to do, that we're, just, we're still susceptible to it. Uh, one of the guys that they have on uh, The Social Dilemma, or one of the, the guys that they interview was like the president of Pinterest, right? And he had mm -hmm. this, this whole discussion where he's like working all day long and then he goes home and he realizes, again, like you were saying, he's irritable and he's checking his phone on, he's checking Pinterest at home as he's walking to like, in to change his shoes or whatever else, right? And there's no reason that he needs to do that no. from a work perspective. It's just that he's geared, like he's geared that algorithm or that the team has so well that no one is immune to it. And this goes back to the whole a B testing that they do constantly as well, right? They're they're mm -hmm. improving those algorithms. And so every time that you scroll through your feed, you know, you're being A B tested as far as, okay, what is it that I'm gonna click on? Right. So if I click on something uh, you know, related to you know, me personally, like related to a soccer team that I like, right? You know, right. It's more likely to show up next time and to be A B tested. Like they're constantly treating you like a rat, right? That's running through a maze to keep you inside the maze. Facebook admitted years ago that they ran a huge experiment on a large portion of the population. And I had read that, I don't know, I read this article a while ago, but I think it's from years ago, we're talking like 
that it was disclosed that Facebook yeah, had been running these social like psychology tests on the population through Facebook to see how people react. And they would, um, it was like, it was actually literally like, can we influence people's emotions? And they can, and they did yeah. with me a hundred percent. Like, here's an interesting thing I noticed when I stopped. So before I took the apps off my phone, I stopped engaging as frequently right on like specifically Facebook. I was like, what, what am I doing? I need, I got work to do. I have a busy life. I have a very busy life. Just like you, you know, like yeah. we, we are always on the go. There's no point to be checking Facebook. That's like dessert. Right. Like there's just, it doesn't make sense. So what happened was, is the type of, I noticed that it's specifically the people that would post stuff that I was just like, ugh, like, you know, just like more, more nonsense, like, uh, like stuff that gets brought down by fact checking. It's, it's just stuff that's like, it's not helping you. It's not helping the whole situation that we're all going through, whatever. What would happen is Facebook would actually say, okay, you haven't been on our platform for a while. Let me send you a notification to that person you, whose post you don't want to see that another person you know commented on that post, on that person's last post. Yep. And I'm like, what? Like, but then I go and look at it and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I know this is wrong. I know this is stupid. I know I'm being controlled. Like, and, and, and not like, I, I like, I don't think it's a, nef I don't know if it's necessarily nefarious. It's just a really well-built set of technology that, you know, determines yeah. like how to get you back on there. Then for me, it's like this person posts bunch of BS, but I have to go look now because you gave me a little notification and it's probably an argument that I'm interested in. And then it just like brings down the whole, just brings down my whole mood. And, and it was just repeatedly happening and it was just interfering with everything. And I think it's honestly, I think it's a virus. I think it's bad as just as bad as sugar, it, you know, to, to the oh, population. Yeah. Right. You know, well, and they talk in the, in the documentary about how they're, they're appealing to like the, your brainstem and those, you know, those baser emotions that you have, right? So, uh, you know, when you post something and you get likes, you get the dopamine hit. Um, when you see something that outrages you, then you're more likely to click and to read it. Um, and then it, it tunes to that. So it's, it's not only that it's appealing to our divisive nature, but it's also uh, dividing us, right? Uh, from a from a democratic institution perspective it's othering you know you know from a political perspective right like blue versus for blue versus red or democrat versus republican right both sides are demonizing the other side based on the news that they get based on the articles that are there and it's not necessarily the, the, the issue that i have is it's not necessarily the ai's fault because we've trained the ai to be like this is the outcome that we want right? The company wants to be able to monetize people's time and eyeballs on the site. Um, the only way for them to make money is to advertise. So that's what they're doing. And the more time that they can get you to spend, the better off they're going to be. So when something like QAnon pops up that a lot of people click on, it gets shared quickly um, because the algorithm sees it as a way to keep people engaged on the site. And it works brutally efficiently. It's, it's, it really, it is. It's, it's brutal and it's efficiency. It's like, yeah, I mean, I've seen people who have, we're not talking friends, but I've seen that too. I've, I've seen people 
during this whole pandemic lose family that will no, no longer talk to them because of arguments over this stuff. And it's like, you know, what's funny is when I go around like day to day out, when I just walk outside the door and inter, you know, interact, people are not like they're being portrayed. Like, you know, that's not, that's not how real interaction occurs, but on social media, of course, there's, there's, it's a, it's a different dynamic and the AI or the machine, the, you know, technology behind the scenes is, is trying to keep us engaged through any means necessary. And yeah, the best thing I, man, I, I can tell you, it's a little inconvenient at times, meaning that like, you know, but that's a good thing. I, it's a little inconvenient at times, when you, you know, because, you know, I might want to like yesterday, I wanted to send somebody something on a uh, messenger and I wasn't at the house and I was like, yeah. ah, I don't even know my login. I haven't stored in a password manager. So I had to go to my physical laptop and I was like, maybe that's a good thing. None of that, because the thing I was sending wasn't time sensitive. It wasn't important. It was just like, like I said earlier, it's a dessert. It's a cherry yeah. on top. It doesn't really matter. It can wait till later. I can go to my laptop and, you know, visit the site if I need to. So for, for what it's worth after three days of being social media free on my phone, uh, man, it's so nice. <laughs> feels so much better. <laughs> Well, so. And, uh, yeah. So that's 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 been the discussion that we've been having here, like in, internally, like within our little family. Is okay, you know, it it does make us feel more isolated. It does make us feel more antagonistic to other people. And honestly, right, like if I look at my Facebook feed, if I look at LinkedIn, right, the feed itself, ninety five percent of the people, ninety five percent of the content that comes through that is really not applicable to anything that I do on a daily basis, right? It not, you know, it's, it's people that I have known at some point, um, but it's not people that I have regular interactions with. Um, and then the only thing it posts from those people is stuff that either like, either I agree with or either pisses me off, right? Like those are the two like main yep. things. And so like, I have this very skewed view of what, what people actually care about, um, right. Like it's, it's not necessarily just like the travel pictures or whatever else that people are posting. It's, it's the, it's the content that's, that's driving me to, to interact with it. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. So, and, and, and this is what it goes back to is, all right. So even if we regulate the social media sites, they still gain money from it. Right. And the AI is constantly going to, you know, change your feed. Neil brings up that good point. I posted it for a second that, you know, chronological non-filter timelines only, please, right? That's what Facebook and Twitter were initially, um, mm. but they wanted to increase engagement and hence that, you know, those AI systems were born. Well, actually um, on, he mentions a tweet bot and I think it was either Neil or Patrick or both on one of our uh, team trips that had recommended tweet bot for the, for the purpose of the chronological sort of order that it that it shows and uh that's been that's been somewhat helpful for sure the only problem is that like i yeah i follow too many people and i don't really and actually on that note this is something i didn't i don't think we've talked about or i've said to you but one thing i realized was that you know it used to, well no we did talk about this a little bit like twitter twitter used to be where we used to go when i say used to like the heyday of when i got the most uh usefulness from a from a, and it what really was for a technical, for like blogs that people wrote, code that they released, for videos they put on YouTube, 
whatever whatever technical stuff that they used to put on um, Twitter it was really helpful between maybe like I don't know 2012 2013 and like 2016 I felt I found it really helpful what I've seen though is a shift to slack so like and it's a little unmanageable because you have so many slack workspaces but I have noticed I'm really actually getting that same that that same sort of content I was looking for not on Twitter anymore because now Twitter's just about like I don't know, whatever, how woke you want to be, bro. Yeah. That's like, all right, cool. Great. Like nothing, nothing, there's anything wrong with, you know, but Hey, it's not really why I went to Twitter for. So now I'm going to Slack and, uh, it's, I think Slack's a better platform for, or at least has been in my experience for, um, getting technical information, which I still need like, I, I get that everybody wants to talk about other stuff. Totally fine. And if that's what Twitter's become, fine. Twitter can sit over there and people can have those conversations on there. Probably I won't be visiting it very often other than just to put out like that we're doing this podcast or something like that and just kind of stick to the, the Slack. And I think the re and, and this is what I'm trying to get to. The reason I think is that with Slack, it's more conversational for yeah. one. For two, usually I'm in Slack workspaces with people I, I relatively know, right? Like even if I've never met them in person from the internet, like we've talked, you know, we, I've seen at least their face. I kind of know who they are. Um, so it's a, it's a more, uh, 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 what is a, a uh, curated, yeah, curated list of people to, to derive information from. And also just, again, to have a conversation. So yeah. I, and that's what I was, I was going to ask, right. Is where do we go? Right. Cause mm-hmm. uh, like, that's how, that's how we got involved in Twitter initially was because we wanted the research. And that's where, like we've said it multiple times that information security lives on Twitter, right. uh, but it's felt again, it's felt so antagonistic lately. Um, and it's that curated feed that, that we're dealing with. It's the AI feed that, that has changed the content. Uh, I mean, I still get some of that, right? Like, but like we, we do still, still see some research that pops through there and like it gets, you know, promoted and retweeted, but the conversation is missing, right? Right. Or the conversation devolves very quickly. And very I, I mean, very quickly. <laughs> and so I would agree that Slack, like the smaller communities, that's what it feels like, right? We are starting to build these smaller communities to give us that same sort of feedback that we had in the early days of Twitter in the early days of Facebook, where it was, Hey, it's my immediate network. And then maybe people, you know, one or two steps outside of that, but hmm. everybody at least, you know, I mean, some of those larger slacks that you and I are in, at least everybody that's in there knows somebody else in real life that's in that Slack channel. Right, exactly. It's a curated vetted list, right? Yeah. So whereas, and then and that actually provides a little bit more safety, I would hope anyways, I don't know. I'm just talking. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like with a curated list uh, inside your, your workspace that you have less of a situation where it's like some scumbag, like, let me slide into this dude or duets DMs and like <laughs> start sending them illicit stuff you don't have less of that on a workspace on a workspace it's like well no like if you did that you're kicked i mean i know a few slacks like no tolerance for that whatsoever so it's like or slack few slack workspaces so 
yeah, maybe that cure, maybe that curated list also helps protect against that kind of scumbaggery you see on, uh, you know, or at least you hear about tangentially. Yeah. You know, uh, usually on Twitter, but yeah. Yeah. But, and then it also comes back to it, but yeah. Okay. So, but then I go back again to, all right, so where do we discover the new research, right? I mean, obviously those, those curated panels are one thing, those curated networks that we have. Um, Follow Jerry Gamblin, man. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. But then <laughs> I, I realize that, right? Like I get all the emails. Daniel but then it's or Jerry Gamblin, Gamblin and TLC Arsec. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and absolute AppSec, right? Yeah. We, uh, we just I, put I, out the podcast. Yeah. I've also been watching Tanya's uh, dev slop and she's had a few guests on that were really, really good too. So that's been helpful as well. Like uh, I caught one, I think it was, I saw it over the weekend. It was pretty good. So, yeah. but yeah, yeah. It's a very small pool at this point where I'm getting my information from. So. Yeah. And but, I, but but that's not necessarily true because going back to Slack, again, we get so much information, but it's not disseminated. It's like because then you have a problem of, well, then you have to be like on the in crowd or not in crowd, but yeah. in that crowd, in that circle yeah. to get that yep. information, which is also problematic. So. Yeah, because we don't want to we don't want to gatekeep that stuff. Right. Like, yeah, we, you don't want to do that. We want to share it. I, I mean, that's why. I, people follow Jerry is, you know, he puts all that out there and what he finds interesting, you know, what's going on in the industry. It's, it's some good stuff. Um, but then, you know, Twitter uses that to pull you back in. Right. Again. Yeah, they do. Hey, quick question. So were the, were, for that social dilemma, was it besides mental health aspects? Is that, was there, were there other things like espionage or not? A, well, I guess I'd be, but like, you know, uh, foreign uh, interference. Do they talk about any of that? Yeah. Or? Yeah. They, t they talk about how, like how Facebook and the, well, the other sites, they didn't, they didn't consider the ramifications of how it could be used by an authoritarian regime. Right. That, oh. that A-B testing and actual propaganda that gets pushed through those those channels. Um, I mean, they're very cagey about it when, you know, like uh, Zuckerberg goes to the, you know, to Congress, he's, you know, he, he doesn't want to admit that his <laughs> site is influencing the election one way or the other, right? No. <laughs> but, it, but it can be used by those that want to target, like, again, advertisers that want to target specific characteristics and specific people to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. So they call it Myanmar. They call it a couple of different um, like real social like problems and real world problems that have popped up over the last couple of years because of the way those algorithms treat things and because of what people see in their feeds. Um, so it's not just the, you know, the moods of people, but they do talk about how, teens and preteens that have grown up with social media are overall more likely to injure themselves, right? To, to do something that's self-harm. Suicide rates have gone up um, exponentially in both of those categories because they're not getting normal react, you know, social interactions. Everything is through this lens of everyone's perfect, right? So there's that whole aspect. And then on top of that, the you know, controlling what people think aspect and what people see. When you say everyone's perfect, are you talking about like, uh, like Instagram filters and, uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. So like, yeah, yeah, like kinda, I'm gonna take yeah. this picture just the right angle to get like the yeah. Like, to make me look I mean, because cool, we yeah. all print, we all present that, right? Um, right. You know, you know, if we're in a small group, we kind of get to know each other. You know, face to face, we understand that people are people, and we have our flaws, and you know, everyone is a is a, is a human, right? But then you right. go on to social media, um, and the people that you follow, you know, Instagram. Yeah, popular Instagram accounts, they put out the perfect image, right? And so everyone tries to also put out that perfect image and it becomes this, well, if I have a flaw, then maybe I am not like the worthy human or whatever you want to call it, right? I do feel uh, like this is the same argument as when pe- they had, you know, models on on the cover of magazines and they're like, this is presenting an yeah. unrealistic. Uh, image to young women uh, of like how they're supposed to you know look and then you had eating disorders and they would blame the cover of the you know or like that that like projection of and I don't know if that's wrong right what do I know I'm an abstract person not a psychology major but 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 okay but think about it right like think about the research that we review think about the stuff that we um interact with right Mm -hmm. Someone calling. <laughs> Do you know where that phone's coming from? That ringing's coming from. <laughs> you look so uh-huh. confused. <laughs> I, I, I am. I think it's like, it's because my God I, is this you? Because <laughs> none of my stuff is turned on. It's my my, my yeah. My son had, does Facetime with someone for school, and I'm pretty sure they're calling his iPad that's in my room for a specific reason because I don't want him on YouTube for kids. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, it all goes full circle. Circle full circle in this podcast. Amazing. Sorry, what, awesome. what were you asking? I'm completely distracted now. Oh, just the it feels like the same argument that was made, and I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, probably there's some merit to it, which is that uh back in the day, you know, when we were reading magazines and not the internet, um, that it gave young people would say that it gave young girls, especially young girls, because of the way they portrayed an unrealistic, you know, with Photoshop and or I guess back then, whatever they used back, I don't know, like the right makeup or whatever, just provide a and lighting and he's gone he's gone he left me <laughs> but you know it just gives them an unrealistic image of okay, uh, yeah. what, I, what, I, what you're supposed to look so, so they can get it so um yes so i want to go back to this for a minute too because you're like oh well it's just like i'm an appsec so what do i know right i, I would dispute that you know exactly how that feels because like when I go on to Twitter, when I go into like medium and I start reading some of the research blog posts and I start reading some of the other stuff, right. It goes back to like my imposter syndrome, right. Completely. Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. Because the only thing that's represented there is, Hey, here's the end results. Here's what I found like in this hacker one program as I was, you know, doing this bug bounty research and you forget the amount of time, you forget the amount of effort, you forget the education that goes into that to actually discover those vulnerabilities, to actually do that research. Because all you get is the 15 minute, oh, it's going to take you 10 minutes to read this medium post, right? Right. And so it's like, I, that is the same thing that kids are feeling when they view Instagram, right? Is man, I'm, I'm not worthy of this, right? Like, am I really right in the end? Like the, the imposter syndrome is what that feeds into. Um, and even those, though that research is good, at times it is very just 
like what what did I say the other day when we were chatting about like Twitter and like I'm like man there's so much like holier than thou stuff that comes through there right that's there the is. tone that I get is oh right like look at how great I am that I did X Y and Z and I'm like and I'm sorry if we give out that same sort of um, you know, mood I know whatever, I don't right? anymore. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I used to maybe, maybe one day when I was releasing open source code and stuff, but not anymore. Yeah. But but even then, right? Like I just um. So so that's what I'm saying is that like I feel like we all we all recognize that feeling of not being adequate. Um, yeah, but I just said earlier, like 12 years in the industry and I'm still learning, you know, it's still yeah. like there's stuff I don't know that I'm like, oh, I should, probably should know that. But, you know, there's just this is such a this is the other thing, too, because somebody who was new to it was asking me. Oh, yeah, actually. So um, one of our students from uh, well, was our student in Australia, but, you know, like now is like buddy talk on the internet it's really nice yeah. that's another that that's a really nice thing that, about what we do is we get to meet people all over the world and keep in contact yeah. but anyway so i was talking to him and he was like well listen i'm moving from you know sort of a senior engineer job to 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 or like role that i filled to appsec and was kind of like talking about the various things uh in appsec and was asking about like what things you can do and then i was like well you know main things are like the same things i talked about earlier training threat modeling and uh, source code review and all that and then i was like Oh, wait. And then there's, and then there's, hold on, let me see if I can pull up the conversation because it was a pretty lengthy conversation. But it was basically like, I started listing out everything that you could do in AppSec. And I was like, oh my God, there's like a lot of things that you can do in AppSec. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. So there's not, never feel bad because there's just not, there's no way you can. Okay, let's see here. I'm going down. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, honestly, da, da, da. okay. Well, might take me a little while to find it, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was just an interesting conversation. The point being that, um, there, yeah, this is very a very wide field, and you can do a lot of things in it, and don't get down on yourself if you don't know everything for sure, because nobody does. And I wish I could find the list, but it was, yeah, it was like everything from, hey, you can have design um, and 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 architecture and risk discussions and and help with that. You can do, you can bit like Neil does. You can build security centric uh, functionality in the applications. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do inside of AppSec. So it's hard to, and also the other hard thing about any job in technology is that everything changes all the time. Like the way we do our work, the systems we're even working on, the way Burp looks now versus like, and all, and, and I've used Burp because Burp's the tool that has probably changed the least, right? Yeah. Like in the last, however long it's been. I mean, I, I was using it back in 08. So I know it's it's been around for a long time. And, uh, and that's not a put down on the tool. I love it. I use it every day. But what I am saying is that, you know, even that, even that tool that hasn't changed as much as some of the other things out there uh, has a lot of new functionality that if you hadn't used it in a year or two, you'd have to reacquaint yourself, especially between the major version upgrades, you know, just to learn how to scan with it, let alone, yeah. and to use the extensions. And so it's an ever evolving, you have to be on top of things. Every, you know, a new language is going to come out. You're going to have to learn that new language because developers are going to be developing in it and you have to learn how to secure it. And you get a base understanding, but it's just like, yeah, everything's always involving, evolving and you're going to, it's a very wide field. So 
don't 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 expect to know everything all the time. Yeah, and I, I mean, honestly, anybody that tells you they know everything is lying as well, right? That's, I mean, I know we go and give give, give training on stuff, um, and we've been around for a while. So if you want to talk about OS top ten, you want to talk about secure code review, right? Like, but part of the reason that like, you and I actually started the podcast is because we don't know everything, right? Right. We bring on people like Neil to talk about CSP because guess what, right? Like, yeah, we we've got a you know a base level understanding of what it does, but. And he's a domain expert. Yeah. And then, and there's domain experts for basically everything that you look at within the field um, that will help you improve your own craft and your own art. Right. right. Um, so yeah, there, there's no reason to get really down on yourself, but again, we have the perspective of having been in the industry and realizing that. Right. Mm. Um, so it's really easy to pop in and, and this goes back to the infosec rockstar style, you know, mentality that there's these, you know, bug bounty guys that are, you know, killing it. Um, they're really good at bug bounty you know, guys and girls and girls, bug bounty researchers that are killing it. Um, and they have specific bug classes that they're really good at finding. And right. sometimes that's what it boils down to is they're very intimate. They're intimately familiar with, you know, the OAuth flow or they're intimately familiar with SSRF and all the, the little nuances that could be applied there or XSS. I mean, I know XSS is still huge and still paid out quite a bit, um, but it's, it's, yeah, like it's almost like you can, def you could find a domain that you're really interested in and, and go for it. So, well, so there's cross-site no scripting. You can become yeah. an expert in just cross-site scripting. That's like, uh, who is it from uh, Germany? Um, Marco or uh, Mario? Oh. Mario, maybe Mario. Uh, he's on the uh, Mario XSS. I'm just gonna put that in. I think it's Mario XSS. Uh, yeah, I. Mario Hydric. Is it? Hi, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That is a true, oh, Cure 53. That's what I was trying to remember. The Cure 53 is the name of the company. Like yep. that is a true, they have like a 50 something page or whatever it is on just XSS. So that's a true domain expert on just cross-site scripting. So like, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, hey, we're going, we've been going for a while, so I have to get off soon. Just okay. Know. Oh, sorry, man. Um, oh, no, yeah. no, no. I just have to go to meetings and stuff. So, Okay. No, I, I mean, it's been an interesting conversation, right? Like, and I mean, if you haven't and you use Facebook and, uh, you know, other social media apps, which pretty much everybody does nowadays, go watch The Social Dilemma, right? I, I'm going to recommend that to, to anyone um, just from a strict understanding perspective of what's going on behind the scenes so you can be aware of it. It will help your, I, yeah, it, it'll just help you know whether or not it's something that you really want to interact with because of the the stuff that's pushed back to you. So I will watch it, but I first have to finish Raised by Wolves on HBO, which is a fantastic. <laughs> I've been loving it. It's super cool. It's sci-fi, futuristic. You'll you'd love it. You'd love it. You should check it out. It's also got the Travis from um from Vikings, the show Vikings. Uh so really? it's so good, man. It's so good. I loved it. But uh, dang it, anyways, no, I haven't. I, I, I'm gonna have to watch that. Sweet, yeah, it's good, it's good, it's worth a watch. So cool, 
Good deal. Well, this is why we have the podcast is to share, uh, you know, so we catch up. movie movie and, and TV <laughs> recommendations to talk about threat modeling, talk about social issues. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, if you want to jump in a Slack channel, please join us on Absolute AppSec, right? Uh, you know, you're listening to the podcast. Um, there's a lot of uh, good research that does come through those channels. Uh, and we'll try and be better about posting all that stuff into the Slack channel as well. Yeah. Uh, and not just on Twitter, on social media. So, Yeah, curate um, more in the Slack space yeah. is probably a good idea. Yep, yep. Yeah. And then if you have recommendations for threat modeling or anything else, please tweet at us or you know jump in the Slack channel and chat with us about it because we'd love to have uh, more discussions on that that front. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, great discussion today, Ken. Thanks for jumping on. And same yeah. to you. I think we're, we're going to be off next week, uh, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And yeah, we'll talk to everybody then. Otherwise, we'll see you all online. Thank you. Bye.